Hi, my name is Valeria Cholak, and I invite you to listen to the podcast Anti-Corruption Conversations, a podcast in which we talk with various experts about power, integrity, public procurement, anti-corruption reforms, and new approaches to understanding this phenomenon. This podcast is produced by the Association for Human Rights Lex 21, with the financial support of the U.S. Embassy in Moldova, and with the media support of Agora. Stay tuned! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first edition of the Anti-Corruption Conversations, a podcast launched by the Association for Human Rights Lex 21, with the financial support of the United States Embassy in the Republic of Moldova, and with the media support of Agora. My name is Valeria Cholak, and today I have the honor to talk to Mrs. Susan Rose Ackerman, a Henry R. Luce Professor Emeritus of Law and Political Science at the Yale University. Uh, she has published widely in the fields of law, economics, and public policy, and she has edited nine books on aspects of corruption and uh, administrative law. Her research interests include uh, comparative regulatory law and policy, the political economy of corruption, public policy and uh, administrative law, and law and economics. Uh, Mrs. Rose Ackerman, thank you so much for accepting to talk to us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I believe uh, that the best place to begin today is with your uh, uh, personal background on this subject, because you've been working on corruption for over uh, 40 years. And uh, I know that at the very beginning, you were teaching a course in um, urban economics in a time where there was a lot of um, corruption in the administration of several federal housing programs for low-income American people. So uh, let me ask you, how is this linked to your interest in the subject of corruption and um, anti-corruption? Or how did this experience, teaching experience, spark your interest in the subject matter? Well, I guess it started that I was interested in the substantive issue of, of providing uh, housing to a low-income population and the fact that the United States had a program of housing subsidy that um, had many, many more people who were potentially qualified than there was housing available. There was a, a, a big, there was a shortage in subsidized housing. So there was some corruption in terms of people just paying to get to the head of the queue. But that was a direct result of the program itself not being uh, very uh, generous. Um, and then there was corruption in the uh, provision of houses or existing houses, putting existing houses into the program in which people uh, paid uh, bribes to have the houses judged to be worth more than they actually were so that the government would compensate people too much, right? So there, there was kind of built into the structure of the program incentives for corruption that didn't have, that, that couldn't be explained by just saying, well, some people are bad. You know, you had to understand it by understanding what was it in the program that provided incentives for people who were willing to um, be, uh, to break the rules to, um, uh, to do it. So it's not, a, in other words, I don't mean to downplay the importance of moral fiber, of ethical beliefs. That's obviously very important. Um, partly because there's so many incentives out there that people resist because of their own moral ethical uh, uh, beliefs. Um, but on the other hand, if we don't want to only rely on that, it's important that programs be organized so that um, there's not as not too much uh, incentive uh, for people to take advantage 
of the um, of the of the of, of the situation. And this is here we're talking both about ordinary people living their daily lives, interacting with the state, and uh, in, uh, wealthy people uh, uh, who take advantage of their uh, of their uh, connections and insight and in in in, in not insight but. <laughs> Connections with the uh, with with powerful uh, with powerful people to uh, to benefit themselves. Uh, thank you so much for this this answer. And uh, my next question is related to your um, um, focus on your anti-corruption research because I know that your research on corruption goes far beyond the American context. And I observed that you have paid uh, a lot of attention to the middle-income countries, particularly countries from Eastern Europe or Latin America. So uh, what has sparked your interest in these regions specifically? Well, I think that the middle-income countries are especially interesting because um, they have a potential to grow, uh, to become more prosperous and to have democracy become more established. Um, uh, but they and they, but they already have some institutional structure on which to build, right? So you're not you're not you're not talking about countries that are really failed states or in uh, or so poor that the basic problems have to do with just uh, having the population have enough to eat and be able to to survive. You there's a there's a I, I'm, so I'm interested in countries where there is you know some level of of institutional capacity, some level of ed educated population that you can build on to, to, to improve things. And I think both Latin America and Eastern Europe are, are really uh, good uh, examples here, um, sort of some similar per capita income, although the countries are very different in many ways. Um, they're ones where I think at least the, the way in which I think about the problem uh, has, some, has, some, has some possibility of, of helping some. And, and, it's, and it's, I've always found it very interesting to learn about what's going on in other places besides, you know, just what's mm -hmm. outside my own door. And because we are talking about uh, corruption, let me also ask you uh, whether you have a favorite working definition of corruption, because now there is a lot of debate going on, especially yeah. be, like since so many young scholars are drawn to the issues of the definitions of corruptions, corruption. So uh, do you think that this is, a worthy topic to engage in, or that this debate is not particularly useful in general. Well, I mean, obviously, it's important for people to decide what they want to study, and there's lots of different things you can study. Um, um, what I have been interested in trying to do is to say, let's not just call everything you don't like corruption. Uh, I think mm -hmm. there's a tendency sometimes to just expand the use of the word uh, to cover anything that you find, um, uh, you know, unpleasant. Um, and that isn't to say you shouldn't study those things. You should study them, of course, but not necessarily call them corruption. I mean, I, I would would uh, take on to, uh, as a start the definition that Transparency International uses, kind of the misuse of public power uh, for mm -hmm. private or political gain. Uh, that's also broader than just bribery, you know, or just uh, narrow, illegal activity. It would include some things that might be legal in a particular situation. But I do think that it's important to ask about things that you want to, that if you, for me, at least if I'm going to call something corrupt, I would like to argue that it makes sense to regulate it, to make it, Ill, to either make it entirely illegal or to make it um, not um, uh, not 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 acceptable in some ways, um, and, um, and rather than just uh, broadly define all kinds of stuff as corrupt, and then sort of somehow everything looks corrupt, and then 
and then nothing is because you haven't made any 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 distinctions. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned in an interview that the field of corruption has really took off after 1989. So uh, when you look back over the 40 years of your work in the corruption and the anti-corruption field, uh, what would you describe as the most significant developments or advances in the field? So what have we really learned building on your work and the work of other scholars in the field? Well, um, it's a different. For this first point is why I think part of the reason why the field became more uh, important was the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, so suddenly you had a whole lot of new countries uh, out there who, who were had some history, uh, but had became uh, independent and and were uh, needed to institutionalize and establish uh, governments um, and. Um, and, and in the past, the international financial institutions before 89, like the World Bank, had been very reluctant to take on the issue of corruption straightforwardly as a condition, or anti-corruption, as a condition for the, the loans and grants that they were making, uh, partly because the Soviet Union could say on the other side, well, you know, come over to us and, you know, we won't ask you too many questions. Uh, now, we currently have something like that with the... Uh, with the uh, from China, although it, within China itself, they have a quite a huge, quite a well-developed anti-corruption um, uh, uh, program activity. But um, but in any case, so there was a time there was a, that that uh, sort of a blossoming of the of the field in the policy area. Uh, I think was directly associated with the with the uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union and the opening up of, of, of those countries, as plus the democratization movement in a whole range of countries, say in Latin, Latin America, that illustrated the fact that that when you're democratizing, you also need to think about uh, the integrity of the, of the state. It doesn't just naturally follow uh, that, that, that when you democratize, you suddenly get, everybody gets honest, right? I mean, as, when, as the American experience or the European experience would, would, um, would, would show you. Now, in terms of what we've learned, um, I think one of the things we've learned is that this is a difficult problem, not that we didn't know it ahead of time, but um, that it has a, a, a range of different pieces. Um, I've, I think one of the things that the, that the World Bank has done and some of the other international institutions have done is a kind of a, uh, of a diagnostic exercise um, where they have some of their people have come and looked at particular um, uh, Political situation, political economic situations, to try to figure out not just whether or not there's corruption, but what kind, what form does it take, and where does it have the most effect, right? So most negative uh, uh, implications. Um, and I think there's been some use, and that of course will not be the same thing in every country. There'll be different questions, and sometimes, of course, the, the, the there may be some things that are relatively straightforward to do, and others where there's much more political pushback. Um, and then, of course, it gets gets bound up uh, with the way in which the political system is, is developing. So there may be relatively clear, you know, that you're going to be collecting taxes from a wide range of people that are not paying taxes or that the system by which people are recruited into high level positions in government or in, uh, is, is, has been 
corrupted by payoffs or by cronyism, uh, but um, uh, uh, so that you may be able to describe quite well, you know, what the problem is. But there's another piece of it that has to do with the relationship between the diagnosis uh, and actually getting something done. And um, and I, and I think that's going to just be. I, I, so I'm I'm. I think that it needs to be that part of what any reform system needs to do is look more look carefully at you know both where are the problems very big so that actually publicizing how big they are is going to help solve them because people will notice it uh, but also where are the um, you know what what Robert Clitgard sometimes calls the low hanging fruit you know the things where you can actually have a victory and brag about it and the help that that will lead to lead to others so um Because you have brought up uh, the issue of uh, democratization, let me shift from definitions to the solutions. Uh, so it seems like uh, one of the most fundamental problems in reforming uh, systems dealing with corruption is that the people who have the power to change systems are often the people who benefit most from the systems as they exist. So the question is, how can we create the right sort of political incentives uh, where the people who can create change will actually desire to create this change? Well, I don't have a simple answer to that. Obviously, it depends upon there being some people willing to um, uh, uh, announce themselves as, as political opponents to the To the um, to the corrupt uh, incumbents uh, and 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 take that on with some support. They can't do it all by themselves. I mean, the the things that I, I did some looking at some historical examples where there had been uh, shifts from a, a quite corrupt situation to one where there was less. Um, so just to take the example of the U.S. Uh, in the 19th century, there was a lot of corruption at the urban area. Uh, and and some at the federal level, particularly having to do with who got jobs in the in the not so much bribery but well quid pro quos that involved uh, involved jobs, and the um, and and what happened in the and so there was pressure you know people were there was a, a progressive movement in the U S so you need that I mean you need people uh, like a civil society uh, groups who are publicizing and pushing for things, but in most cases, they can't do that all by themselves, right? So they need to have some allies. And um, what apparently happened in the U.S., this is just this example, is there was part of the business community that was really fed up with, I would assume that's true in your country, really fed up with the corruption. Um, they, they may be involved in it uh, as a survival strategy, but they really don't like it. So there, they would be, they, there was a portion of the business community that became allies in some of the urban reforms in the U.S., Because they felt like they were being taxed too much compared to these other people who were um, who were paying bribes to get contracts and um, were, and, and also were not paying many many taxes. So there was an alliance between um, uh, parts of the business community that were willing to uh, collaborate and speak out, and I think that's extremely important. Um, and then and then of course there had to be some politicians uh, who, unless you can take over the government, well maybe you sometimes can, but you also need some of the people who are engaged in politics to think that it would be in their interest to uh, present themselves as reformers. Um, and apparently one thing that happened in the U.S. was that the national parties, the national political parties, we're talking a big country here, right? The national parties were, were becoming somewhat less powerful than they used to be compared to the state and local parties. And those local parties were corrupt. Um, and so you had then some politicians at the national level who supported reform, 
because they were no longer, not from out of any some great you know, altruism, but because they were not benefiting as much as they had. So you had a coalition of business, of civil society groups, and of some portions of the government uh, that were able to push through, in this case, it was the civil service laws that you know, regularized and professionalized some of the, of the, of the, of the, of the government. You had a similar thing in the UK of um, 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 uh, uh, a, a kind of a patronage system for, uh, for the younger sons of, of, of more wealthy people um, who you know, weren't going to inherit the land. Um, and um, suddenly the government, the government was not expanding. So what did they have? They had a situation in which, like, they had 10 people coming in wanting a job, and they could only give away one job. So you had nine people angry at you. Um, and, and then the substitute was to say, okay, this is not something, this is not our choice. We're putting this into a more professional, uh, uh, into a more professional, uh, uh, system, right? Um, so it's that kind of, 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 of looking for the points where there are people who you don't think of necessarily as, 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 as reformers from a kind of an ethical point of view, but who can be, um, they may want to be willing to, or find it beneficial to use that language, but who actually, it actually will, they actually will work in a coalition. And that seems to me important. Now you mentioned in your, one of your questions, uh, Singapore and Hong Kong, um, um, and, and said, look, Moldova is about the same size as Singapore and Hong Kong. It's a small place. Uh, maybe it could do the same thing because they are often pointed to as examples I think the U.S. or the British examples are better because they're bigger countries. But anyway, the Singapore and Hong Kong are pointed to as 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 little sovereign powers, though they're not quite sovereign powers, that um, were very corrupt. And corruption there connected with the drug trade, uh, with the illegal business, which I think is also an issue in Moldova, right? So there's exactly, exactly yeah, um, and and that's very important because that's not that's like a part of the business community, <laughs> criminal businesses, um, and that was uh, important. A problem in both Hong Kong and Singapore, and uh, and it got to the and it was that the police had been infiltrated, um, and so it it got to the point where the leadership in those places um, made a major push to get rid of corruption. Now there's some different, some special aspect. I, 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 these examples are not as as good or favorable as you might think, right? So Hong Kong was a colony of Great Britain when it reformed, right? So it had a governor general had been appointed by the queen, right? So there was, it was not like a popular movement. People were happy afterwards, but it was, it isn't, it isn't a very, it isn't a wonderful, you know, example. Well, it, it did succeed. So it has that uh, uh, situation. Um, Singapore, of course, uh, is nobody's idea of a democracy. Um, uh, Singapore is small, but it has been controlled by the Lee family uh, with sort of nominal elections. So, it, it, is, it is, in a way, I think, a, a, a troubling example uh, because it is one of how you could have a, an authoritarian system uh, uh, committed to, to getting rid of corruption. And so you get rid of corruption, but you still have a very authoritarian system there. Uh, so it's hard, you have to be careful when you think about anti-corruption that you embed it in a kind of a broader range of things that you care about um, in, in a society. Don't make it like the only thing that's, that's, that, 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 uh, uh, that matters. And the other thing is that uh, Singapore, the, somewhat Hong Kong, but particularly Singapore, has become what gets called a financial paradise. In other words, although this, the, the, the citizens and the business in, within Singapore are not corrupt and the 
pe penalties are very, very severe uh, for, um, for uh, engaging in corruption. They nevertheless have become a place where you can form a shell company, you can hide your wealth from outside Singapore. And this seems to me incredibly selfish. You know, I mean, in the sense that, you know, they're, they're doing their own people are benefiting, but they're acting in ways which are harmful uh, to the rest of the world. Um, and there are quite a lot of small countries, and I would hope that Moldova does not move in that this direction, right? A lot of small countries, islands all over the place, that uh, uh, present themselves as financial paradises. Um, so once again, they may not be that corrupt on the day-to-day -day basis inside the country, but they have become um, nodes, places where uh, hot money, uh, money from corruption, money from the drug trade, um, um, other uh, money which may not have involved bribery, but may just be money people have stolen, sort of fraud money that's been fraudulently gained, and they kind of hide it there. So I would, you would hope that or I would think be a very strong, important thing. Because what do you do when you're a small country? How can you become um, a you know kind of a valuable part of the international community? And and or how do how do small countries become wealthy? Well. That this is one route, but it is a extremely destructive uh, route for the rest of the world, and especially where you are, right in the middle of between Ukraine and Romania. You're right, kind of next to the EU, it's, mm -hmm. and um, um, uh, you know, and there are places um, that that uh, you know, smaller countries in that in that region who have kind of taken that take, take, taken that on. Um, so you got you have to do something else besides that. <laughs> And uh, let me now ask you, which do you think are the best methods to measure corruption and uh, its costs also? Because uh, uh, speaking about these two countries, uh, their status as the least corrupt Asian countries was also determined by the Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index. So which do you think are the best methods to measure corruption? Well, I, I, the problem is, I mean, the, the, you know, the, T, the TI index tells you something, I think, about the uh, relationship between the government and society. Forget about the external stuff we were talking about, right? So that that you, you when you're scoring well, um, I always tell my students it's gymnastics scoring, right? I mean, it's, the, the, it's good to have a high number. <laughs> and and, and, uh, and you, have, you have to be careful when you're reading um, uh, uh, empirical papers that use this data, that either they use it as TI does, as high as good, or sometimes they reverse it. You know, they take this thing and then they do an inverse. But in any case, um, it, it's, as you said, it's just, it's just perception, but it, it's showing something about, in a very rough way, about uh, uh, some dysfunctional relationship between the citizens and the society when those numbers are quite low in between this and between the and citizens and, sorry, and, and the state, as well as between business and, and the state, because some of this information comes out of business perceptions of, of, of the difficulty of, of, of doing business. Um, but it is a very, very rough measure. And, um, and it's, not a, it's not a measure like feet or inches, right? I mean, it's not a, it's not a, um, it, it, it is a, it is a, like a, it's a, it's a ranking, well, it's, it's, you can, there's a separate thing for there that you can rank the countries, but that the numbers that you're looking at are not um, objective numbers. Uh, it's a scale that's been made up by the people doing it. Um, um, so the a measurement. How would you measure it? Right. I mean, so there's some people have tried. There's been some more 
um, small-scale measures of the amount of, of money that people pay in bribes right? uh, in, in the context of particular things. Right? So that would be interesting to find out. You can sometimes find it out through uh, experimental, uh, experimental work. Um, but on the other hand, if you really care about the harm of corruption, it's not just the transfer of the money from the bribe payer to the bribe receiver. It's what the bribe receiver does in return for the money, say, gives a contract to that firm or overlooks uh, the pollution that that firm is engaging in in the, in the countryside, harming people. And that's the real cost of corruption, is, the, is not just the money that goes from one pocket to another, which is part of it, but the, but the uh, effect on the way in which the society is, is operating. And I don't, I'm relatively pessimistic about coming up with an international measure that, uh, that, um, that, that, is, that is very precise. Uh, about that, we could probably learn. We can probably learn more than, than we have. But um, but I, it, it's it's you, you understand why people go to the TI index because it's it's sort of there. You know, it's based on these. It's a compilation, of, as you understand, of a whole bunch of other of other of, of other indices. But I would rather see more attempts to sort of look at the level of individual market or the individual an individual program and try to see the kind of distortions. That have been that have been introduced by 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 corrupt by corrupt payments or attempts to use policy to see what 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 could what what could matter. So I don't have a simple answer to this other than a, than that people should be skeptical of 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 these of these big international rankings um, as as as. Uh, being absolutely definitive, you know, you shouldn't be shouldn't be watching so carefully. Oh, did we go up or down? You know, two or four, two or three, you know, levels in the in the in in, in the ranking. It's all within the margin of error. Uh, they they're amazingly stable over time because they are um, uh, attitudes that uh, you're capturing attitudes. Um, and so I would rather that reformers said, okay, let's look at the housing market, you know, or let's let's look at the um, agricultural, some agricultural market. Let's look at the drug trade and how that has has corrupted people, and try to really understand how 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 it, how it works. Uh, let me now ask you about uh, your experience with Transparency International, because I know that you've provided some consulting uh, to this organization, and you mentioned in the uh, preface of your, one of your books that this has been a very valuable experience for your anti-corruption work. So let me ask you, how did the efforts in raising the issue of corruption to international consciousness have corresponded to your own scholarly and uh, policy interests? Well, um, as you were pointing out, my, the first book that I wrote about corruption was published in 1978, so, so a long time ago, uh, and it was really for an economics audience, um, uh, you know, a certain amount of math in it, not a lot, but anyway, it was, it was, uh, it, but it, it was after I got interested in the topic, and then um, uh, it, it there wasn't much work particularly being done in economics on the topic. It was more in sociology or some political science. And as, although I teach in law and political science, my doctorates in, in economics is the sort of field from which I come into these other areas. Then in 89, after that, after that switch, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, um, suddenly, as you were pointing out, and the corruption became being talked about, um, Somebody invited me to give a talk in about 1990 and said, work on corruption goes back to 
to Susan Rose Ackerman's early book, and I thought, goes back. That was like, I have to, I can't claim that I'm young anymore, right? Um, but it also made me think I should, it would be useful for me to get back into thinking about that, that topic. So I had been doing work in other, other, other fields until then. And I had two things happen. I had a chance to work at the World Bank for a year, um, which was absolutely fascinating because it was just when Wolfenson came in as president. Um, and so I was there doing his first year when he was you know, re-examining what the bank should be doing. And the bank was beginning to think about actually talking about corruption. I mean, I remember I looked at the at their search for corruption in their email, uh, where you could search in their in their on their email, not their email, but their sort of website, the primitive website. And the only country that came up, the only place that was using that word, was some discussions about Paraguay and Latin America. So obviously, Paraguay it was so corrupt that, that they thought they could mention it. But otherwise, it wasn't even being talked about in any formal document. And then that changed over that year that I was there. And I like to think I had something to do with that. I had some conversations with the, with the general counsel, Shiata, with other people. And, of course, there were other, other things going on. But it was, a, it was clearly in the air as something that people were, were interested in talking about. And I gave several set workshops. So that got going. At the same time, um, I got involved with when Transparency International was just getting started. Um, I went to a conference in Budapest uh, about um, about anti about corruption, um, and there were several of the people there who, that founded uh, Transparency International, including Peter Eigen, uh, who had been a World Bank official, in, mostly in Africa, uh, had gotten very upset about about corruption and founded it along with uh, three or four other people. One of them, as I was saying, as I, I was mentioning business before, one of them was a lawyer. A career lawyer from General Electric, which was quite important. Uh, somebody who was in a private security firm, four or five people. Anyway, I got up and made my talk and um, I said, you know, sometimes businesses when they're dealing with a country like Qatar, you know, they might see that there was corruption there and then they worry about whether they should have a contract. After I sat down, the man from General Electric ran over to me and he said, how did you know? <laughs> I didn't know. I just was talking about it. So then they decided that they'd rather have me involved with their group rather than standing outside. So I was on the board of the U.S. chapter for a while. Um, and um, I got, you know, for quite a long number, number of years um, as they were, as it was uh, developing. Um, and I think it's a very important organization. I mean, you know, and that it, it really did try to, it operates, as you know, as a franchise in the sense that the, the individual chapters are sort of locally controlled, but under some kind of guidelines, uh, more than guidelines, but, you know, uh, some kind of, of protocol uh, from, the, from the office uh, uh, in, in Berlin. And from the you know from the beginnings where they really had no no real staff no permanent uh, uh, setup uh, they have office uh, you know office in in, in in Berlin that helps the helps the chapters as well as done some of its own has done some of its own research um, um, I worry that we're talking about the index I worry that the index itself has become um, a little bit of an albatross you know, in the sense that. Um, um, it, it's clearly something that the local chapters actually benefit from by, by saying, look, how much better you could do. You haven't done very well. Right? Um, but it's so hard to connect what you actually are doing with what ha changes in the index that it's a, it's a difficult uh, thing to, to um, do. So um, I, I think they may be 
I mean, I think they're sort of caught and trapped in it. But on the other hand, they do do very good uh, work in terms of supporting the chapters, helping new chapters to get to get founded. Uh, they've, they've been very good. They were very important in the OECD and the Corruption uh, Convention. You know about that? So that is a convention in which um, countries that ratify this treaty um, agree to make the payment of bribes abroad by their businesses uh, an offense within their country. Um, some countries don't permit corporations to be held criminally liable. The United States does, but say Germany does not. Um, but um, you can have a mixture as uh, in, in, uh, in between going after individual members of the business that's gone after, you know, board members and, and executives. You can go after them as well as to go after the corporation. And even if the corporation can't be held criminally liable, they can be penalized in some way. So Germany, for example, has some kind of a way of fining uh, uh, business uh, business organizations. Um, so they, they, the, the, the convention allows for that kind of variability in how um, in how uh, in how corporations are are, are penalized. Um, the U.S. This was, as you may know, was um, insta- uh, the the whole push to have this convention passed came out of the United States, which had the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, still has the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, uh, formed in the 70s after Watergate to, uh, in response to some corrupt scandals involving some of the big American uh, businesses. And, and the U.S. has always been the leader in the uh, enforcement of that, of that treaty, um, helped by the fact that our notions of jurisdiction, criminal jurisdiction, is very broad, so we can include corporations that have that are, don't have their headquarters in the U.S., but that have manufacturing or something else. Um, and, that, but, and it continues to be true that the U.S. is the leader, but there are other countries now that are beginning to actually bring some more cases that are, that's, 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 that, that, that's important. So that's there. That was a big thing that TI worked on. Um, uh, uh, it, it is now, I think, trying to do more in the internal problems of corruption in, the, in some of the wealthier countries as well as in the development, in, in development area. Um, so, um, so anyway, so I think it's, I think it, you know, it's, 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 it's continuing as a good, um, as, as, as a good organ, as a good organization. Let me now ask you or shift the uh, topic of our conversation to my country, the Republic of Moldova. So, um, as you probably already know, we have recently had parliamentary elections in my country. And of course, these elections did not go on without the interference of, um, corruption. You know, people just paying for votes or paying like, uh, Uh, a bribe to get the voters to support them. So uh, in this context, I know that two years ago you gave uh, an interview for the University of Barcelona in in which you touched uh, exactly upon this subject. So uh, could you please bring this up for our listeners as well? So my question is, what is the relationship between um, money or private wealth and public power? Well, as you... As, as you were saying, I mean, one, one of the things I've I've tried to say as a way of 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 saying there's a broad that, that as I said to you before, I would prefer to think of corruption as a somewhat narrower thing than the broader concept of the relationship between private wealth and public power, right? And that is a choice for a country legal system to decide. Where do they draw the Where do they draw the line about where it's where the use of private wealth 
to um, have some influence on the public power uh, should be outlawed, made a crime, made a civil offense. Um, uh, should we have? Should you have rules and regulations that constrain it? Uh, and and what, what, how much of it should you call corrupt, and how much of it is not desirable, but um, you know, part of a part of a kind of realistic understanding of how the world works. So, um, so that's a clear issue for for a country like Moldova to 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 think about. Obviously, one the issue has to do with campaign financing. Um, where does the money come for financing? Um, 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 this is, of course, an issue in the United States, where we have a huge amount of private money that comes into financing campaigns, and I think much, much less transparency there should be. So the, the first level is transparency. Let the voters know where the money is coming from, um, and uh, so that if they don't like the source of the money, that can be one reason to vote against um, somebody, right? That's that's a kind of minimal thing. Is a is transparency about about where the money has has um, has has come from. The second thing is, should you restrict the uh, amount of money that can go into um, private money that can go into campaigns? And then, if you restrict it a lot, then there's going to have to be pub some public money uh, to uh, to support campaigns. And there's a, a lot of interesting thinking about how to do that, right? Because the problem is. If somebody's an incumbent, they may automatically have some kind of an advantage just because people know them because they're incumbents, unless they've been horribly corrupt themselves, in which being an incumbent might be a disadvantage. Uh, but there's there there is this there's still the question of how to deal with with in, with um, incumbents. Do you want to encourage more political parties to to be founded because you don't think you have enough diversity in the political spectrum, uh, so you kind of help that to happen? Or do you think it's too easy? So, for example, I've done a good deal of speaking in, in, uh, to people in Brazil. Uh, and the problem in Brazil, which is, of course, a huge country, um, is that it has too many political parties. Um, so that it's very hard to have a coalition within the legislature to actually get anything done. And so that encourages the people who are in the pre it's a presidential system, pre the people who are in the, in the, the person in the, in the presidency, to use money to try to form, put a coalition together. It's one of the sources of the big, or one of the um, causes of the big corruption scandals in Brazil in the last, in the last, in the, in the last few years. So that has got to be sort of thought through, you know, in a poor country, I imagine Moldova is a relatively low income uh, uh, country. Um, another piece of this is, so you may need to have some private money, but the way, other piece of it is how, what kind of restrictions are there on campaigning itself? Is the campaign short? One of the things that happens in, in parliamentary systems is you help you know, reduce some of the problems by just having relatively relatively short, transparent, uh, you know, transparency is necessary, I think, but you know, not, it's not like US, we're already thinking about the presidency you know, from next time, right? Um, uh, so, that, so that things don't, don't end up costing that much. I, I there, some, in some countries, there is, subsidization of television time or certain particular ways of campaigning. That I think is probably a mistake, right? Because it may be all you can get away with, but it's, it may be a mistake because you might have a politician or a party that thinks, no, they want to try something else besides they want to do social media. You know, they don't want to go on television. They want to do everything through Twitter or something, right? Or FaceTime. Um, uh, and, um, uh, uh, and, 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 let the parties make those choices themselves, 
rather than have the 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 the, uh, the public money come from from particular places. Um, of course, buying votes. You know, you don't you want to try to organize things so that at least it's difficult to buy votes. One form of that, of course, has to do with how the secret ballot. Um, is the is the is the system organized so that people you know whether whatever kind of money they took from anybody they don't have to vote uh, you know for people that that um, you know that, uh, that, that, that that helps them out um, public forum you know in terms of uh, uh, political debate debates between people so the idea is basically to get people talking and discussing what's going on to encourage you know decent people to go into to go into politics um, um, and to try to check, follow the money, you know, check where the money, where the money is going to make it harder to, um, to, um, to, um, to have for people that are simply wealthy uh, to, to sort of buy the, buy the election. Uh, thank you so much for this answer. And going back to discussing Moldova, uh, we often hear that uh, in Eastern Europe, we are more uh, tolerant towards the dishonest conduct. So I want to ask you, what do you think? Are we condemned by our history or is this written in stone for us? Or is this just something that uh, um, we can change, but uh, we are using this argument, but but okay. I don't. I mean, I don't know Moldova, but I would say you're using this argument as an excuse, right? I mean, there's no mm -hmm. reason. I mean, you've seen huge changes. I'm sure you have in your lifetime uh, in um, in in Eastern Europe, and so it's not true that there can't be big changes in the way things are mm -hmm. run. Um, and um, uh, of course, people have ways in which they're used to doing things, and they may carry those over into the new uh, situation. Um, but I very much resist the idea that that, it's an, that it becomes a, a an excuse, that your history becomes an excuse for the way you behave. It may be an explanation, right? It may be, you may be able to explain why people don't feel so, so upset about other people's malfeasance or about their own malfeasance, because they don't even think of it as malfeasance. But that has to do with, partly has to do with uh, people in the country being not not you know from the U.S. embassy, but people in the country being able to explain to other people the 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 the, the cost that this is that this is that this has, um, and, um, uh, and so I I, I I I certainly think it's not it, it shouldn't be used as a the, 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 the somehow notion that things are unchanging <laughs> shouldn't be used as a as a as, a, as an argument here, right? Mm -hmm. It may mean certain things are more difficult than others, and it may mean that when you're when you're picking where to fight, you pick certain areas rather than others. Um, and of course, there are situations in which people may be may be used to making payoffs. Well, ask yourself two questions about that. What's the harm of it? Maybe it's Causing a, the individual payoffs don't seem like very much, but overall, it's leading to a tremendous misallocation and some kind of benefits. Or if you say, "Well, you know, it doesn't really," it's just like buying, going to the store and buying bread. You know, you're just um, paying a little bit for something else. Well, if, if that's really true, then you should legalize it, right? Um, and if you find some discomfort in legalizing it, you need to ask, "Why is that so? Is it because the person is a civil servant?" Who's supposed to be living on the salaries that they're making? Is that true? Are those salaries actually quite comparable? Um, so that it makes sense to enforce, you know, the police. I don't know, something like that, right? Um, and um, so there may be, in other words, reasons why it's there, which are which are which are um, historical, 
but need not be um, taken as, as, or should not be, I think, taken as, as, um, as, as given. They're going to help you understand what the, you know, where the problems are, what are the, what are, what are the things that need to be done. It's not just about lowering, making it cheaper or easier, to be honest, but about making it more acceptable, to be honest. <laughs> Thank you so much for these uh, reflections. And uh, uh, now let me ask you another question. So in Moldova, uh, there is a lot of debate going on right now around the issues of uh, grand corruption or the big corruption scandals happening at the political levels. Uh, but however, you recommend not to underestimate the low-cost corruption because uh, you say that it can grow and create more conditions to scale up. And uh, could you please elaborate just a bit more on that? Well, first of all, uh, of course, high-level corruption needs to be dealt with. Um, you were suggesting, or maybe it was saying, you know, that there was some, there, there used to be a particular oligarch who was uh, controlling things, right? So mm-hmm. um, almost like a substitute for the state or a shadow, a shadow state. Um, those are clearly major problems to be to be to be thought about. Um, but on the other hand, um, where I really just said this, when something is called, uh, sometimes it's called petty versus grand corruption, and by petty, sometimes get the meaning in English is eh, trivial. Don't worry about it, right? But mm-hmm. it can, if, it, if everybody is doing it, and and then you look at this program, suppose it's, suppose there's a lot of quote petty corruption in the educational system, in which people are paying teachers in order to get good grades. Um, or the teachers are extorting payoffs from students by saying, well, you have to hire me as a tutor uh, or, or I won't give you a good grade, right? So this is clearly distorting the meritocracy aspect of the, of the, of the uh, meritocratic aspect of the, of, of the educational system overall, um, if it's widespread, uh, and particularly if, it's, if, it's, um, if there's a, a, a bunch of students who are from low-income backgrounds who, who just can't participate in this, in, in, in the system, you are dis- distorting the claim that the educational system is producing, you know, a new uh, meritocratic a meritocratic elite. So that's just an example. Or the or healthcare, you probably can see this in the in the COVID uh, situation, or, 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 or more generally, um, that the distribution of the health benefits are not are are disadvantaging uh, people without many resources. Now, of course, in general, people who are poor. Are you know lack resources, so it's not just corruption that's the problem, but but the uh, but the but the corruption may be exacerbating things, particularly in areas where the state has taken on some obligation uh, to provide services. Thank you. Um, because you are well known for your joint research on corruption and uh, economics, let me also ask you about the flows of the microeconomic framework of analyzing corruption. Uh, because some critics argue that this approach does uh, not do enough to incorporate the cultural fac- factor, the psychological factors, and uh, just those sorts of non-rational uh, motivators of the human behavior. Uh, I'm sure that you are familiar with these uh, critiques, and I'm sure that you have something to say about this um, line of critique. Well, first of all, I accept that critique. I mean, I'm, I'm coming from my own uh, scholarly background, uh, which is economics then uh, uh, elaborated through political science and through and, and, and through law. So one of the things I've actually enjoyed doing is reading work by anthropologists and sociologists and psychologists about how people make choices uh, in these kind of uh, kind of situations. So I think we can learn a lot uh, from from that from from that work. 
where I get a little annoyed is where it is used as a justification for um, uh, for what I would call uh, corrupt uh, corrupt behavior, right? By saying, "Well, it's just the way people think," or it's just so it may help to explain. Oh, it's what I was saying before, right? It may help to explain why people are behaving in certain ways. And then the, the question, not just for me, but for people in these other fields, is do you take it, therefore, as, an, as excusing the behavior? And if you take it as excusing the behavior, that implies that you are, would, would, I would think, that you would want a change in the legal system so that this behavior, which is now counted by the law as corrupt, um, is no, is, isn't, it's, it's legalized, right? And, 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 and as I said, that might be the right answer in some cases, right? Um, but it is, and it is possible that in different, different countries would have different views about certain kinds of, about certain kinds of behavior. The reading, it's, I mean, I, and I think it's an extremely interesting uh, topic. Some of the reading that I did, um, not, 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 not becoming an expert, but just reading some of the work, uh, particularly in the African uh, context, most of this argument was often comes up, mm-hmm. um, was that in the, when you interviewed people, they were very upset about the corruption in their country. In other words, they didn't see it as somehow, oh, that's just, cult- that's just, that's our culture and you people from outside are pointing the finger. No, they felt like they were, but they felt to some extent they were trapped uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a situation in which the only way they could get things done was through a certain level of, 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 of payoffs. I think that's been true in parts of Eastern Europe too, particularly say in healthcare. Um, well, there I think it is important to distinguish between people who are kind of caught in a system and uh, and feel a, a you know to get their baby delivered, you know, or their uh, to get access to the hospital or something, or they have to make a pay a, a private payoff uh, to the to the doctor or to the nurse to have that to have that happen. Well. I, I would certainly not recommend a, a major law enforcement program against those people. I mean, against the people who are paying the bribes, um, but rather that it suggests that there's a need to reform that the basic way the system works. Maybe the doctors need to be paid more. Uh, maybe the hospital system needs to be reorganized. Um, because it, it's, it, is, it is, in other words, it's recognizing the history and the culture, but not saying, but not saying that, not not using a cultural explanation as as something that's in stone. That is, well, we just can't do anything about it. People just always pay doctors. No, they don't. You know, they uh, in, if the uh, if the uh, if the insurance system works well, if the uh, you know the if the um, institutional structure works well, they they get the health care uh, that they that they uh, that they need either out of pocket or through an insurance system. So it's 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 complicated, and it's why I think. That people with my background can learn a lot from the psychologists and the, and the sociologists, but it 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 shouldn't be taken as 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 uh, as, as a definitive um, excuse for what's going on. Uh, thank you, and I would like to go back to discussing the sol- solutions to corruption just a little bit more. And in the conclusion of International Handbook on the Economics of Corruption. Uh, you mentioned that uh, clever technical solutions based on economic incentives may not be enough for curing corruption, and even strong moral leadership, which we perhaps have now in Moldova, is not sufficient. So um, what else is then needed? You talk about uh, tough, pol- tough political and policy choi- choices, but uh, they mm-hmm. come with their 
challenges and risks as well. Can you elaborate just a little bit more on that? Well, um, I think it's, it's it, I, I think there isn't like a single answer here. I mean, obviously, you, in this new government in Moldova, um, has got to make some choices about, uh, you know, pick your fights. You know, what, where, on the one hand, it's where are the problems most serious? Um, is it in government procurement? Um, is it in permitting the drug trade to operate with impunity? Um, is it in a certain certain sectors, certain social uh, social service uh, sectors? Uh, you can kind of list them or put them together. Uh, and then the second question would be, where can you make some some progress? Um, and um, and 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 that depends on a certain level of, of uh, a lot, big level of realism about um, where um, things can be, um, uh, where, where, where something can be done. Um, I like, um, um, the, this is uh, Bob Clipgard, who's also somebody who started writing about this around the same time I did, is, you know, sort of looking for, um, make some, um, have some successes, right? <laughs> um, so, which may mean that you don't take on the absolute biggest, most threatening thing at first, but you take on, you look at something that you, or you actually could, or you actually think you can, uh, first you can get popular support, something that will be relatively visible. Uh, and I don't know Moldova what that would be. Um, but, um, uh, you know, what are, what are the, what are the police or how do the police operate? Um, what is this, what is the healthcare system? Would, would be an obvious uh, good one in this present day and age. Um, you know, I, I wrote a little paper, mostly I mean, it was that was talking about COVID and corruption, uh, and, you know, the special incentives created by the emergency, uh, and uh, the uh, special reasons to be particularly concerned about corruption when you're sort of very very quickly spending a lot of money in a particular area. And Moldova may be getting some some aid out of maybe from the from the World Bank or the IMF or the or the EU to help with your, with your stuff. Uh, so, you know, that's a kind of first thing to be sure that money is, has been, because it's right there staring you in the face, that that money has been, has been spent in a, in a decent way um, so that you can, you can um, brag about it uh, to your own citizens, uh, but also to the outside funders who are, who are helping you, who are helping, who are helping you out. So, Mm -hmm. Can't can't like you know just is it, you know, you have to make not you personally but I mean the country has to make the, those those choices yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the end, let me just ask you one more question: um, Are you optimistic about the global fight against corruption? And do you think that countries like Moldova, where country where corruption uh, seems to be embedded embedded in the nation? Will ever fully eradicate corruption? Well, nobody's going to fully eradicate corruption. That's not going to happen. But I think you can make any place. But accepting that, right? You can certainly any any place can make pro, can make progress um, if there's enough uh, enough uh, 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 demand for it from the citizens uh, and willingness to take some uh, to deal with something that is that's obviously going to be difficult. But it's in some ways, it's it's a it's not easy. But it's it's 
it's easy to persuade people that this is important, right? If, if people, I, I, cause my, I, my guess that in, is Moldova is not much different from these people in the articles that I was looking at. They may feel that they, they're, they're so used to it. They've gotten, they've, it's kind of embedded in what's happening, but it doesn't mean they like it. Uh, and, you know, what is it they particularly don't like, <laughs> you know, in their own day-to-day -day life where this is important? One, that's one set of, 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 of things. Uh, so they're going to be allies, even if they're used to it, right? Um, and, uh, and on the other side, uh, major forms of corruption in, in public procurement. I mean, that's an obvious place to start, it seems to me, public procurement. Uh, you can get some help there from the WTO, which has a, a separate protocol for, for procurement, which not a lot of countries sign up for. But, you know, you're small enough that you're probably understand that you need very often in procurement to bring in outsiders. Uh, the, one of the main objections to, uh, to the WTO thing is that you have to be open to, to contracting with firms outside of the country. Well, I would assume that you, you pretty much have to in, in, uh, in many, many cases. But procurement, is a, it's, a, it's been, a, it's been a, a sector very full of corruption all around the world. Um, this was the big scandals in, in, in Brazil and Latin America with Odebrecht, but it's not. It's in the U.S. It's all kind of places. So it's a it's a pretty straightforward thing, and and I think there may be possibilities to say compare the costs of certain kinds of projects that have been carried out with how much they cost in other in other places to sort of benchmark benchmark stuff. Um, so it's it's it, and that's big, right? It's not, most people on a day to day basis are not contracting with the government to build a bridge. Uh, so it's, it's uh, you know, you, um, you, can, you, can, you can think about it. So anyway, that would just be certainly something to be, to be brought in. And before we are wrapping up this podcast, is there anything else that you would like to share with our Moldavian listeners? No, I think um, we've talked about an awful lot. I'm very impressed with your uh, mastery of my past work. You did a really good job of thinking about it. But other than, you know, that, you know, it, it's up to you guys in Moldova to, to think about where the, where, where the, the places are where you can make a difference, uh, and start to make a difference. And I'm, I'm sure you can figure out something, but, uh, but I have to leave it to you to do it. <laughs> Thank you. Mrs. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a true pleasure and honor to get the chance to talk to you. And I hope that our Moldavian listen listeners will enjoy uh, our conversations. And dear listeners, this was the first edition of the Anti-Corruption Conversations podcast, which you can find on uh, Agora, SoundCloud and YouTube. Stay tuned and uh, have a nice day. Good. Well, best of luck for the rest of the session and for the future of Moldova. Okay. <laughs>